second uh, sermon from this small book of Philemon. Philemon is the shortest of all of the letters that Paul wrote, and so it is at the back of Paul's letters. The New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, stories of Jesus' life from different perspectives, and then Acts, which tells how the, which tells how the story of the, the, the early church, and then we begin with all the letters that Paul wrote. And generally, they're listed in order of longest letter, Romans, uh, down to shortest. So Philemon is way at the end. Maybe you've never even bothered reading it because it's so short. And um, I don't blame you if, you if you thought, well, what's the purpose of reading this? Because throughout church history, many actually scholars and theologians thought the same thing. They thought there's, there's no use. Like, why is Philemon even in the scripture? There is... Like Paul wrote it, but he doesn't talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He doesn't talk about the main themes that he talks about in all of his other letters. Like, what is the purpose? Many people have thought that Philemon is kind of bizarre. I'm not sure why it's there. So, um, it is in our scriptures, though. It is God's word, and it is very important for us. If we only had Philemon, just that one book. And let's just say all the others got burned or eaten by animals or whatever. The only thing we have of the scriptures from the first century is a letter to Philemon. We would know that there is something happening brand new in that first century. Because no one talks like this back then. No one talked like that back then. No one shared these things. So even if all we had was this letter, we would know there is something strange afoot in the first century in Roman Empire, this new church. They're, they're figuring out how do we live? How do we live out the gospel uh, in, a, in a society that is so opposed to our values? So it is extremely important for us. Last week, uh, we looked. I just want to review a little bit of uh, Philemon. Philemon uh, was written by Paul. It's a letter to Philemon. And who was Philemon? You can shout it out if you want. If you're wrong, we won't laugh. A master. Slave master. Yes, in Paul's churches, they were people that owned, that's what they owned, slaves. They said there are tools. Some tools are living and some tools are not alive. And so slaves were some people's tools and they even were in Paul's churches. So Philemon was a slave master. He owned slaves. One of his slaves was named Onesimus. For some reason, we don't know why, but Onesimus ran away. Everything we know about this whole backstory comes from this letter to Philemon. So it seems like um, he may have stolen something or done something wrong. Maybe that's why he ran away. We, we gather this from this letter. Or maybe as he was running away, he stole some things from his master Philemon so he could survive for a little while. But he ran away. Somehow, he ended up meeting Paul. And Paul's in prison. And then while Paul was in prison... Uh, Onesimus becomes a follower of Jesus Christ through Paul's ministry. And so now Paul refers to him as um, my son. He says, I fathered uh, Onesimus in prison, not like physically or biologically, but spiritual birth. And Paul loves Onesimus. Onesimus has been very useful to Paul, and that's a play on words, although it's actually the truth, because Onesimus actually means useful. Slaves were often given names, uh, and so Onesimus was given his name, useful. Oh, you're a useful slave. Um, and so Paul says, he's been useful to me. I would love to keep him here to help with my ministry. But he says, you can see this in, in, the, in Philemon, in this letter. He says, but I don't want to do anything without your consent since you are his master. So I'm sending him back to you. Paul says, that's what this letter is for. With this letter, and I want you to do the right thing. 
And so this is what Paul is doing in this letter. It's funny for us in our century, in our time, to look at that and think, why isn't Paul saying, like, you shouldn't have slaves? Like, that's, we know that, but Paul doesn't say that. And even in the rest of Paul's letters, he talks about slavery a lot. And actually, slavery is a key theme, a key theological theme, all the way back to Jewish history, right, in, in Egypt. And Paul says, we are slaves to God, and God alone, we cannot be masters to, right? We, we're, we're masters to one uh, or another, but not both. So we are, it's a key theme, but Paul never actually says, stop having slaves. However, many people throughout centuries think this letter kind of laid the roots for the abolition of slavery. It kind of laid the groundwork. So we're confused. Why don't we just say, Paul, like, don't, don't, like, don't have slaves? But instead, um, the core, the center of this letter, as we looked at last week, was reconciliation. Slavery um, was secondary uh, to Paul. The first major issue was, here's Philemon, and here's Onesimus. They're brothers in the Lord now, but they have some issues. And so Paul is kind of putting one arm around Philemon, because uh, actually it was through Paul's ministry that Philemon became a follower of Jesus Christ too. And he's got another arm around Onesimus. He's saying, you guys, they get along. So I'm sending, a, I'm sending your slave back to you, but I'm asking you to not receive him as a slave, rather receive him as a brother in the Lord. So he sends us. That's the, the main theme, is this reconciliation between brothers who are of this church in Colossae. Everything else works itself out from that. Now we know, well we don't know, we're pretty sure that Philemon did release Onesimus because in the letter to Colossians, we see that he's listed there as one of uh, Paul's fellow workers. So we can you know, probably assume that Philemon did actually release Onesimus to go back work with Paul in his ministry. Not 100%, but that kind of seems what's happening. So that is uh, the story. Backstory to this letter of Philemon. Last, year, last week we looked at the main theme of reconciliation between brothers, between sisters, between people, and how important that was, and how the ministry of reconciliation, not just between God and us, which is first and foremost, but also it has to work itself out between brothers and sisters in the Lord. You can't love God and hate a brother or sister. It just, you can't do that. If you love God, you also love your brothers and sisters. If you love your brothers and sisters, you're loving God. So this theme of reconciliation is very key. Slavery seems to be a secondary issue. So today, uh, I want to look at exactly how Paul approaches this. So if you have your Bibles, look at Philemon. Um... I have a napkin diagram, but I might come back to that later. So, sorry, just to let's skip that. Philemon chapter 1, uh, verses 4. Let's start there. 4 to 9. Remember, Paul is writing to Philemon about Onesimus. He wants them to be reconciled because they're brothers. So Paul says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people, and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying this about Philemon. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of everything we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. 
One thing you'll notice, after Paul gives his greetings and he starts talking, he talks about, what is the key theme here? Love. Because, Philemon, of your love, um, because I hear about your love, right, for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, your love, Philemon, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. You know, when I was in Bible college or seminary, sometimes um, the, the professors would give you this assignment. So read, read the book of Exodus or read the book of Deuteronomy or read this book and come up with a new title. Like Exodus, you know, is just the name that it's, it's someone gave to that book. If you were to just forget that there's no name, just how would you name it? And it helps us to think uh, with new eyes, with fresh eyes, like what, what would I call this letter? And so some people have done that with this book, with this letter. To, I mean, it's kind of a boring name, right? Philemon, a letter to Philemon. Um, but some have suggested that if we were to name, give this letter a title, it would be uh, for love's sake, for the sake of love, really, for love. This is what many people see as the main theme because Paul appeals to Philemon's love, as we see here in verses 4, we see verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Therefore, he says, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, right, because Paul is the apostle, okay, I mean, he's in jail, right, but um, he led uh, Philemon to Christ and Onesimus, and maybe he feels that he's got some authority. He says, I could, I could order you to do what you should do. Yet, he says, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul. You know, I'm just an old man, he says, and also I'm a prisoner, so I'm not claiming any apostolic authority or I'm not saying, like, I'm the boss. Just, just another, I'm, a, I'm a man, I'm an old man at that, so I'm a prisoner. That I appeal to you for my son, okay, my spiritual son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Paul appeals to Onesimus on the basis of love. Because of love, will you do the right thing? He doesn't, um, he does exactly uh, as Jesus has taught. He's walking in the way of love as Jesus taught. I forget what you have in your notes. But anyways, you can follow along. I don't, uh, Jesus talks about the fulfillment of the law as being love. You know this, right? When someone said, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, you know, love the Lord your God. There's like how many commandments? Hundreds? 600? 613 or whatever? So many commandments all throughout Scripture. Jesus says, but all of this can be summed up with two commands, right? You know this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor, right, as yourself. If you do that, you're fulfilling the entire scriptures. He says all of the laws are filled up in these two. Jesus said that. Jesus was God, so I think he knows what he's talking about. Love is the fulfillment of the commandments of the whole law of God. So by, when Paul is appealing to love, rather than laying down the law and saying, I'm, you know, I know what you should do, this is what you should do, you ought to do this, he just says, I'm appealing. And Philemon, you've showed me love, and we're encouraged by your love. Like, you have this love in you. So Paul appeals to Philemon on the basis of Love, which is very uh, scriptural, very Jesus-like. The letters uh, that Paul wrote, um, the Gospels, they explicitly say love is a distinctive element, right, of the Christian 
life. It's the more excellent way, right? First Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It's the the law. It's a new commandment. Jesus says, I have a new commandment for you, but it's not all that new. Love your love, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. New for you. And um, the revelation of the character of God is reflected within relationships within the community uh, to love one another um, as yourself. This is, this is not new, right? Love. So doesn't, don't you like how Paul wrote that, that letter? I mean, he could have laid down the law and said, this is what you're supposed to do. In fact, I'm just keeping them because that's the right thing to do. And uh, he could have just said that. But instead, he, he appeals uh, on love. says, on the basis of love, will you do the right thing? Um, wouldn't you like people to, to speak with you that way rather than saying, this is what you should do. You're supposed to do this. This is what happens. It's a nice way, right? It's a very loving way. But Paul very easily could have just listed, you know, made some, some scripture verses. Like, um, these are in your notes. Leviticus chapter 25, for example. He could have just said, look, if, I could quote scripture to you, Philemon. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, don't make them work as slaves. And there's lots of other verses uh, in the scriptures, the Old Testament. That they're in. Paul could have just quoted, or he could have commanded because Paul speaks pretty harshly sometimes, it seems, in some of his letters, right? And in 1 Corinthians 7.10, there's an example where he just said, this is coming from not the Lord, it's coming from me. I'm making a command to you. He could have just commanded. He could have quoted scripture. He could have made a command. But why didn't he do that? Perhaps Paul knew, like we know, uh, sometimes, or maybe always, usually, um, we respond better um, based on how something is said. Isn't, isn't that right? Like, first thing in the morning, you walk in and your boss is like, hey, do this. Like, didn't even say, like, how are you? Or did you have a good weekend? I don't mind doing that, but it would be more easy to do if they just said, you know, hey, how's it going? And, and do you mind doing this? Or, right? How we say something is important. I think, I think you believe that, right? You don't even, right? I don't mind doing certain things, just but the way you said that, so, no, I'm not doing it because you're being whatever. Um, so maybe Paul realizes that, and he's thinking, I have something I really want you to do, but I'm going to say it in a way that is loving, and I'm going to follow Jesus' command. He could have said these things because there were scriptures. He could have just laid down the law. He could have cited a few scripture verses and said, look, this, this, therefore, do that. End of discussion. You know, the Bible says just do it. But instead... Um, he didn't. He appealed to him on the basis of love. Ephesians 4.15, that's a very hard verse for us to do. Um, speak the truth to each other in love. It's easy to speak the truth. It's hard to do it in love. And sometimes we can't, so we don't say anything. But Paul is epitomizing the speaking the truth in love, which he wrote um, in another verse. The only thing that matters, Galatians 5, is that faith expresses itself through love. So I think like this. I think this is good. I think you would appreciate if I had something to say to you or anyone else that they did it out of love, right? And if you feel love, if you feel, oh, I see why they care for me. That's why they're telling me these things. It's so much easier, isn't it? You like how Paul addressed him, I think, don't you? And if I or a brother or sister were to address you, would you want them addressing, you know, out of love rather than just a command? But just a minute. This is a very uncomfortable letter actually. Remember, this is a letter okay, that Paul is writing to Philemon, because Paul met this slave 
who has become a brother, and he's sending the slave back to Philemon. It, it's like a per- he's writing to Philemon. But who does he send it to? Let's look at verse 1 and 2 and 3 again. This letter, Paul says, is to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphrodite, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. So Philemon receives this letter from Paul. Actually, Onesimus brings it to him, and it is read out loud for Philemon to hear for the first time at church. How would you like that? How would that make you feel? You know, let's just say, hypothetically speaking, let's say there's a sister and a sister, you know, one sister here, one sister there, and you don't get along. You're sisters. You belong to the same home, family of, of the Church of God, but let's just pretend that that happens here at Cornerstone. Would you like me to preach a sermon on that and name you and say, look, on the basis of love, I would really like you and name you and say to reconcile with this person. How would that make you feel? (laughs) You would not like that, would you? But that's kind of what's happening here. Not only that, but the person that Philemon is supposed to reconcile is bringing the letter. And because the the church meets in Philemon's home, he's probably got more than one slave. There's probably other slaves also listening. Oh, I wonder what he's going to do because... You know, if that's easy, I could run away too and go meet Paul and then come back. And I mean, it's not, we talked about slavery a lot. It was different. Being a slave and then becoming free really wasn't a good choice for many people. It's harder. So it's a different scenario than it was back then. But uh, that's the situation. Now, doesn't that make you feel uncomfortable? If there's a brother or a brother or a brother and a sister, and I know you're not getting along, how would you like me to respond? It's a personal thing, right? Why wouldn't Paul just write to Philemon? Here's a letter to Philemon. Here, read it, you know, in your free time. Why wouldn't he do that? Because he did write a letter to Timothy, right? A personal individual, right? It wasn't supposed to be read, you know, in the church setting at the worship service and Titus. But this one, it's an issue between two people, right? So why? Well, why make it a, like a thing of the church? It makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? I think... Okay, now you're meddling. I think you've just crossed the line. You would think I was meddling, I think, if I did that. And probably both of you would never come to church again if I preached a sermon, so I'm not going to do that. But I think we can learn uh, from the discomfort we feel when we look at what's happening in Philemon. Why is Paul including, like, everyone? If you use the NIV, which is the Bibles that we hand out to you, don't you? Verse 3, what does the footnote say at the bottom? after the word you, grace and peace to you, it says it's plural. Like, how do you do plural in you? Like, in French, it's vous, right? But tell me, what's the plural of you in English? Y'all. Right. Use guys. Okay. So that's what it says here. Grace and peace to y'all. Okay. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also plural in verses 22 and 25. There's just more evidence that this is written to like you, everyone. Like to all the church. For some reason, Paul wrote this letter to Philemon but gave it to everyone in a public setting. Well, public in the church setting. That makes us feel uncomfortable, does it not? Why would that make us feel uncomfortable? 
partly because our society is different than it was back then. Some societies today are similar uh, to first century Judaism in the sense that they are very uh, community-oriented. Our society is not, we are individual first, right? Like, I'm going to choose what I'm going to do, and I'm going to become independent from my family and from my parents, and the independence and individualism is very important to us here in the West. Some cultures today, it is not that important, and it was not important in the first century. The community was much more important. That's why it's use guys or y'all. For example, um, 1 Corinthians. Uh, okay, forget my slides for now. We'll just leave it right there. I'll read some of these verses to you. 1 Corinthians um, chapter 12, uh, verses 25 to 26. It's in your notes. Paul is writing to a church. He says, there should be no division in the body. What is the body? Church. Right? That, that is the most popular way to describe church in, in the New Testament. Body. One body. We're not like hundreds of different bodies. How many people are here? There's not like that many different bodies. You're one body. There should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Right? You've heard this before. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. So if one person suffers, we all suffer. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Because we are one body, this picture of unity. We are one church, one body, representative of Jesus' body here on earth. Also, Matthew chapter 26, verses 48. Jesus, um, someone said, hey, your mother and your brothers want to talk to you. And Jesus replied, who's my mother and my brothers? It almost sounds rude to us. And then he points to his disciples. And he said, hey, these right here, here are my mother and my brothers. He expands the idea of family to not just our immediate biological family, but this, like you are my family, he says. These, these are my, my brothers and sisters and my, my mothers and my fathers. This is the most popular way, the most common way to talk about church. We are a family. And that may grate on us a little bit because we come from a society that elevates the individual. And yes, that is important. But maybe we've gone too far. Maybe we can learn some lessons about how Paul's addressing Philemon that maybe, it, maybe we need to pay a little more attention to our brothers and sisters. Like you have, maybe some of you have a brother or a sister, biological. You're always connected, right? Maybe some wish you weren't. Uh, some of you probably love your brothers and sisters, but you're still family. Can you consider that same here? Like you're my brother and like you're my sister, right? Maybe I'm your pastor, but first and foremost, I'm your, I'm your brother. But can you relate? But this, is, this is how we witness to the world, by how we live. Didn't Jesus say that? What did Jesus say? Well, how are they going to know, the people we prayed for during that six how are they going to know that we're disciples? By the love we have for one another. People will see that and think, whoa, I want an in. I want that community. I want to be part of that because look how they love each other. That's what Jesus said. Anyways, this is how other people will know that we are followers, that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. But you know what? Some things in the scripture are cultural. Right, so it just relates to them. Their culture is completely different. Maybe, maybe that's what this is. 
maybe it's just a cultural thing, and we live in a different society because, like, I don't uh, see women wearing head coverings, right? although that's in the scriptures, right? But we, we know that's a, society, that's a cultural thing. That's not something that's for all time. So maybe this is the same. If this makes you uncomfortable, then you can use that line of reasoning. So, you know, that was it's a different culture where you know, personal stuff is much more important now uh, than it was back then. So you can use that to skirt this issue. But there are so many other references to, in Scripture to brothers and sisters, to us as one body, that you also have to kind of get around and you're not going to be able to. So this isn't merely just a cultural or a society thing that has changed as cultures change. This is the core picture of what it means to be part of the body, part of the family of God. So how does this to us today? The very core issue of Philemon is reconciliation. But the way that it's done is based on love. Brotherly love and sisterly love, which is a very Jesus-y thing to say. Love is at the core of our, it should be basis for what we do, for all of our actions. How does that relate to us then today? We have become very individualistic. And so in our Bible, even our English language doesn't even have a word for you guys. And often we read scripture, we see the word you, and we think, oh, me. It's talking about me. But we don't know because it's English. It's actually talking to like the people of God. Here's a promise for the people of God. It's not necessarily an individual promise for you. But we live in this society that even our language represents that. So it's hard for us sometimes to break out of it. I'm not asking us to go to the other extreme. Let's honor the individual. But maybe we can learn something from these letters that Paul has written, um, inspired by God, they're part of the scripture, that there's something more that we're missing. Something we're missing about this household of God and brothers and sisters. So not that long ago, um, I'm going to give you an example. It wasn't too long ago, like in the 50s, um, a political scientist named Robert Putnam. He was illustrating how things have changed between the 50s and uh, today in one of his books. And he talked about this phrase, our kids. Okay. So back in the 50s, this time that long, it's not first century, we're talking about some of you were still alive then, right in the 50s. Our kids. For those of you who were alive back then, um, what, does, what would our kids have meant? I'll tell you what this guy says. When you hear the term our kids back in the 1950s, when parents used the phrase, they're... Um, Talking, they're taking responsibility over the kids of their community at large. That's what our kids meant. But today, we have become even more and more individual, individualistic. And so now when parents talk about our kids, they're talking about, they're probably talking about their own biological kids in their own family. There's, our sense of responsibility has been narrowed down to like my, my family, not the larger social network around. This isn't even a Christian concept. This is just how it was in community. Right? It takes a village to raise, raise a child, but our kids, we, kids in the community. How would this affect the church? Let's just imagine that you're in a church. Um, okay, so not this church. This is imagining that your church has a youth program that appears to be decaying. That is not our youth program. Our youth program is awesome. But just imagine, okay, you're in a, a, another church. And uh, the youth program appears to be decaying. 
how might a parent who is oriented back like in the 50s, to, oriented towards community, respond? Maybe the parent from the 1950s would like to jump in and see it as her duty to help build the program back up to vibrancy. She might volunteer, host a gathering, or teach a class. If someone asked her to justify her new zeal, she might respond with something like, our kids, right, our ki in the community, our kids deserve better than what they're getting, so I'm going to work at it. You can see there's a response, a community kind of aspect, responsibility. But a typical parent today, a more individualistic parent, might have sympathy for other kids, but when push comes to shove, it's his kids he's concerned about, first and foremost, right? When confronted with the problem of this youth program that's going down the tubes, this individualistic parent will be more likely to complain, remain silent, or maybe look for another youth program, or move to a different church so his own kids are better off. And if he was pressed to justify his action, he might say, our kids deserve better than what they're getting, so I'm going somewhere else. Can you see how that might work out in a, maybe a hyper-individualistic society, which is what our society has become? And yet when we look at scripture, the most common metaphor for is the body, like a family. We are brothers and sisters. That's the term that is being used. Can you see how we maybe have missed the point here? Even we love talking about love. We love that all the commandments, you forget about all that, just think about love God and love others. We love that. But when it's worked out in a community, does that mean that sometimes like, an individual's problem is like our problem? Might that mean that uh, an individual's issues might be our issues? Might it, might, um, if there's a relationship that has gone askew within the community, just between two people, do you think it might affect the whole community? This will be the scriptural teaching. This will be what God teaches about his community. So that's why unity is so important to Paul. He says, there's no Jews or Gentiles. There's no slave or free. Like, forget all that stuff. This is a different society here. They think differently. The Roman Empire thought differently. Our world might think a certain way, but in the church, when we belong to one another through Christ, when we are brothers, it's different in here. Can you see how maybe we might have missed the point? It makes us feel uncomfortable. I'm sure it does. And so last week when we talked about the ministry of reconciliation, I challenge you that maybe, maybe you need to be reconciled to someone. And you need to do the best that you can do to be reconciled, because it takes two. Or maybe you're even aware of, of two friends who aren't getting along. It doesn't mean you're supposed to do something, but maybe God is asking you to, to be a minister of reconciliation within our community. So it, it affects. If one part suffers, we all suffer. Right? If one part is honored, we all rejoice. This is a picture of, now, maybe we'll never reach perfection. Maybe we'll never be the perfect church because there is no perfect church because people are in it. And people said, as soon as you find a perfect church, like, don't go there because you're going to mess it up because it's true. There are no perfect churches, but we can strive towards this goal. How, how might that look different? Can you imagine a community, Christ-centered community of people who follow Jesus who are more oriented, a little more oriented towards community than to individual? How might that look differently? How might we extend care to each other? How might, how might that be different than other ways that maybe we can change some things that we're doing. 
you know, we're all individuals, and we respect and honor each individual, but here we, we come together. Can you imagine the people around you and behind you, in front of you, like as a brother, like a sister? That's what Jesus did. He had biological brothers and a biological mother, but he's like, no, these are my brothers and sisters. Might that help us a little bit become a little more like a Christ-centered church? One body. You all have a part. First and foremost, I want you to see each other as brothers and sisters. I want you to see me first and foremost as your brother. Yes, I'm a pastor. I'm your pastor. But before that, I'm your brother. And we have youth leaders. And we have Sunday school teachers. But before that, she's your sister. Okay, he's your brother. Can, you, can we maybe begin to think that way a little more? And how might that affect our community? And you think other people might be drawn into this kind of a, a community where love, it costs. Like, it would have cost Onesimus, I mean Philemon, right, to extend that love to Philemon. And it's costly for, probably scary for Onesimus to go, it costs both sides. Love is sacrificial, so there's a price to pay. Jesus showed us that. But how might that look in our community? And so, for those of you who are, who are new or getting, starting to get into the community, we're not there yet, but this is we're getting there. And if this is appealing to you, then we invite you to come on in and, and join and, uh, and speak up. Let's speak the truth in love to one another. Philemon's a short letter, but you can see if all we had was that letter, you'd think, whoa, something's happening here. These Christians in the early first century, they're trying to figure out how to live. Like this is new for them. Jesus died and came back to life and he ascended to heaven. And whoa, how, now what do we do? And this is one of the ways that they're trying to live out the gospel. How might that apply to us today? That's my question for you. So you can answer that question as you feel. Please talk about it with other people in your small groups. And uh, let's keep moving. We have a church community together. Let me pray, and we'll sing one more song.